There are two activities that are universal to humanity. We all love to do them, and we especially love to find new ways to win at these two particular games. What are they? Making excuses and playing the blame game. You and I, as we age and learn to exist as human beings, learn to make excuses for our failures and blame others when we fail. We seek to regularly blame others when you and I have missteps, or we seek to make excuses. And we see these two activities regularly played out in the media. Uh, For example, just this past week, a number of uh, NFL players were caught cheating, or not really cheating, but gambling, uh, which is against the NFL's policy that, that players are not to engage in any form of gambling on NFL games, right, wrong, or indifferent. But one of these players made this following public statement after his name was named in this particular investigation. He said, I made an error in judgment, and I'm going to work hard to make sure that those mistakes are rectified throughout the process. I made an error in judgment, he says. Notice how when we confess our moral moral failures, how we tend to distance ourselves from them. They were only a misstep, uh, an error in judgment, a mistake. I didn't mean to do it. It just happened. We downplay our moral failures through diminishing our obligations. It was just a minor infraction, a, a lack of judgment. I, that's not who I am. Notice here uh, in this particular player and, and many others like them, even you yourself perhaps, how we diminish the moral obligation by making the infraction seem as if it happened to us rather than we were the one who did it. Oh, I just stepped in a pothole. I didn't mean to do it. It it just happened upon me. Rarely do we find or hear confession where someone owns their moral failings. Rather, we seek to distance ourselves, minimize the significance, or, as we see also in other issues in our day, change the moral landscape to match our particular sins. This is what we do, and this is as old as Genesis 3. But as Christians, our approach to moral failures is not to distance ourselves from them, but to confess them before the Lord. To use the language of the Bible, it is to walk in the light. Now you'll remember Jesus said that men do not walk in the light. That that men love to the darkness because their deeds are evil. You and I love to live in darkness. You and I love to keep our sins concealed, secret, known only to us. But as we'll see today, the problem is, is that God in His grace exposes our sin. This is what we affirmed in those, uh, those number of hymns we just sang. A bit of an aside for a moment, uh, some tell me that Calvinists and non-Calvinists can't coexist in a church. 
Well, friend, you, you understand that is a foolish statement. You see, we have more that we agree on than we disagree. Uh, let me give you a little project you can consider uh, later today, perhaps, or, or if you begin to fade a bit here in the sermon. Uh, consider all I have is Christ, and Jesus keep me near the cross. One written by a non-Calvinist and one written by a, a Reformed thinker. And notice the similarities to both of them. They say the same thing. You see, brothers and sisters, we understand that regardless of where one stands on some of these finer theological issues, all of us need the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I give this as an example to you because so often what we do is we seek to compartmentalize certain particular issues rather than speak the truth in love, rather than open the Bible and consider what the Lord has for us. And regardless of where one stands on this particular issue, we both affirm that the grace of God is this, that God's Spirit brings us to life. In the words of Jesus, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven unless you are born of the Spirit, unless you are born again. And this morning we are going to think about how when the Spirit, by grace, brings us into the light, how you and I ought to confess our sin. But before we jump into Psalm 51, we'll notice that this particular psalm is written in a particular historic context. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see there at the beginning of Psalm 51, there is a superscript, a, a, an introduction, if you will, before the psalm actually begins, a verse zero. Who knew? Did you, not, did you know that? There are zero verses in the Bible. Psalm 51 begins this way, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is and finds its historic context in David's sin with Bathsheba. Now you may not be familiar with this particular Old Testament story, but I'll, I'll catch you up a bit. David was the king of Israel. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. The nation of Israel had a king prior to David whose name was Saul, and Saul was a wicked man, an evil man, and God appointed David to be king. David was to be the, the royal representative of the nation of Israel before God. He was to be a holy man, a righteous man, a godly man. And David was all of those things, but David also was a sinner, and one particular time in the, his kingship, the nation of Israel had been battling the Philistines, which was their arch enemy, and David stayed home when the army went out. And David was a warrior. He was uh, the leader of the army, but he chose to stay home one particular day, and through a series of events, he had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah the Hittite, and David conspired to cover up his sin of adultery by having Uriah the Hittite murdered. He put him on the front line knowing that he most likely would die. This great king, the one who is described as a, God, as a man after God's own heart, was an adulterer and a murderer. And he thought he got away with it. Like so many of us, 
we sin in secret and nobody knows it. Nobody knows the kind of things we are dabbling in, the kind of wickedness that we are into. And no doubt many of us have seen headlines or turned on Facebook to find someone who we know to be convicted of heinous crime. And we're, we're thinking, I would have never guessed. I would have never thought. Because they were a master of disguise, a master of deception. And David was this kind of deceiver. But the problem was, is that God knew what David did. And through the prophet Nathan, God exposed David's sin. And this story is recorded to us in 2 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles open, let's turn there before we begin Psalm 51. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12, 263 in the Pew Bibles provided for you. David sins with Bathsheba. He has Uriah the Hittite murdered. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can read that later. Now we're fast forwarding to chapter 12. Some time has gone by. David has covered up his sin. Chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him with his children. He used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared for it the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. Nathan through the Spirit of God, exposed David in his sin. And David's response wasn't to cower or to hide or to make excuses. But if we were to go on to read the rest of this chapter and the subsequent, he owned every bit of what he did. And Psalm 51 is David's confession before God of his vile wickedness and of God's gracious restoration of the king of Israel. And it anticipates a greater king, one who will not be given to adultery, one who will not be given into murder, but the one who will die in the place of every adulterer, the one who will die in the place of every murderer, that they might go free. Turn with me back to Psalm 51. Given a sense of the context of what's going on here, I hope brings a bit of light to this particular passage as we study the desperation. Under the law, David deserved death, execution. Both of his offenses were capital punishment crimes, adultery and murder. And so David is in a desperate place as he leads the congregation of Israel to sing this Psalm, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean." Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let, my, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my, trend, my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in the burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The point of this psalm is to invite the congregation to reflect on the true nature of repentance. David, through his own sin and rebellion against God, uses, as he says there in this psalm, uses his own willful rebellion against God and his confession to teach the congregation of Israel and to teach us this morning the true nature of repentance. As God graciously exposes our sin, we must turn toward Him through confession of sin so that we might be forgiven by God through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is the point we want to consider this morning. This is the idea that we want to fill our minds with. And this particular psalm outlines for us four steps to true repentance. So if you take notes, there's four points, four steps that we want to consider. Number one, ground yourself in God's grace. Ground yourself in God's grace. Step number two Get real about your sin. Get real about your sin. David is honest, blatantly honest about his sin. Step number three, go to God. Go to God. And we'll see David go to God for a number of things in this confession. And number four, give God the glory. Give God the glory. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is giving God the glory. These are the four steps we want to consider in our time this morning. Number one, ground yourself in God's grace. The words of David as he begins in verses one and two, I believe are the words of every Christian. 
And no doubt many of you in this room have used this psalm as your confession, your daily confession. Have mercy on me, O God. As sinners and rebellious individuals rebelling against God our Creator, our only response when our sin is is exposed is to plead upon the mercy of God. There is nothing we can do but to plead that God would be merciful towards us. We see David here grounding his confession as a foundational point in the grace of God. Only God can forgive. There is nothing David can do to wash away his sin. Nothing that David can do that can satisfy God's righteous wrath against his willful rebelliousness. He begins by appealing to God's character. Notice there, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, David's plea for mercy is grounded in God's character. The standard by which God forgives is His covenantal love with His people. God will not abandon His heritage. He will not abandon His people. And here what David does is appeal to Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And we've considered this particular passage as the great riddle of the Bible. How God is a God of mercy and and is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see, God satisfies His righteous wrath through atonement, as we'll see in a moment. Through the death of another. David deserved death, and something will die in David's place. David's greater son will die in his place. God is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. So David here appeals to God's character, but he also appeals to God for pardon and purification. Look with me at verse 2. Well, the end of verse 1 and verse 2. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. The word that David uses there to blot out. Is to completely cover over, to make it as if it did not happen, as if it did not exist. It's like taking a giant whiteout and covering over our mistakes. David is pleading that God would wash him, cleanse him, purify him, blot out all of his sin. He desires not only pardon or justification, but purification, or what we Understand his sanctification. David desires that his sin would be pardoned. And what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us is that when by faith we believe in Christ, we receive a pardon for our sin. We are justified. Not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not because of anything we did, but because of what Jesus did in our place. He lived the life we should have and died the death we deserved. 
And by faith we are set at one with God, justified, and also we are promised purification in the gospel. If you want to read more about this, you can consider Ezekiel chapter 36, what I quoted earlier in our assurance of pardon. That God promised through the new covenant that we would be sanctified. And throughout this psalm, David cries out for a new heart. Wash me, and I shall be clean. Brothers and sisters, we understand that God's grace shines the brightest at Calvary's cross. There, God satisfies His just wrath against our sinful rebellion. Our confession must begin here. Anything beyond this leads us into a works righteousness. We regularly sing, not in me. And this particular hymn articulates the truth we're trying to think about this morning. That, there, that God doesn't accept us because of our confession. God doesn't accept us because we have tears in our eyes. God doesn't accept us because we know a lot of Bible verses. God accepts you and He accepts me by faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteousness, or rather repentance, begins by grounding our appeal in God's grace. Secondly, the second step to true repentance is to get real about your sin. Verses 3 through 6 In verses 3 through 6, David gets real with God about his sin. He doesn't seek to explain his sin away. He owns his sin, and you must own your sin. Notice what he says. Verse 3, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Brothers and sisters, we know this by experience, don't we? When the Spirit shines a bright light on us, we know our sin. It won't leave our conscience behind. It it continues to gnaw at us and dig at us. Our response to this must be to own it. I sinned. I did that. I rebelled against God. No one made me do that. I did it willfully of my own free will. Proverbs 28.13 Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Friend, do you own your sin? Or do you blame others for your actions? You see, we must not make excuses. We must not make excuses. And David makes no excuses. He doesn't say, well, Bathsheba shouldn't have been out there Naked on the, the, the little parapet. She shouldn't have done that. It was her fault. It was, it, she made me do it. No, no, David says this. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We understand that sin, while having effects on our relationship, so, so David doesn't mean that, that it had no effect. Clearly, it had an effect. A man died. And a family was ripped apart. And if you continue to read, a child dies. The child that Bathsheba and David have dies. There were consequences that affected others. David's point here is that ultimately all sin is an offense against God. Why? Because all people are created in the image of God. So when we hurt somebody else, ultimately we are 
hurting God. We are seeking to rebel against Him, against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We love to justify our actions. We qualify every action with extenuating circumstances. Well, you don't understand. Um, you weren't there, um, right? We're, we're like teenagers that get caught. Well, you know, my friends made me do it. You know, they were all doing it, and so I did it. Brothers and sisters, we must, if we truly desire to live in the light, we need to come humbly before God like the prodigal son and confess, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Friend, you are no victim. You are a sinner in rebellion against God. Look here, look here how he goes on. He says, don't play the blame game either. Don't blame others. Don't blame. He says, verse 4, he says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. We, we can't blame God because of our willful rebellion, nor can we blame others. Notice there in verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David here is teaching a, a, a tried and true doctrine that we affirm, which is total depravity. That by nature, we are totally depraved. We don't have classes for toddlers to learn how to be sinners, right? We don't have that. They, they, just, they, they just happen to pick it up, don't they? No, 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 friend, they don't pick it up. They, they're sinners by nature, right? Even a, a child's cry to receive nourishment from their mother is a sign of the fall and its own individual self-centeredness. We ought not to blame others, nor should we blame our education. It is not a valid excuse. The Bible makes clear throughout both Old and New Testament that God's law is written on our hearts. We know what's right and what's wrong. It's not a matter of education. David knew what he did was wrong. So we have to ground ourselves in God's grace. We have to get real with our sin. And ultimately, we have to go to God. Look there in verses 7 through 12. Verses 7 through 12, David goes to God. He doesn't go to the priest. He doesn't go to an idol. He takes his, 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 his appeal directly to the tribunal bench of God. He goes right to the judge, and he pleads for pardon. In verses 7 and in verse 9, he cries out to God for a pardon. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. We don't have time to dig into all of this, but I, I just want to point out a number of things. Number one, notice who does the action? God. David does not think there is something that he can do in order to make himself holy. There is nothing that David can do to pardon these iniquities. They are too great, too, too heinous, too awful for any action he can do to make them better. There's no good deeds he can do to un, undo all of the wickedness that he has done. He has totally and utterly ruined his life and the life of Bathsheba and clearly into the life of Uriah. This will have lasting and, and rippling effects. Even his own son Solomon 
will be infected with David's disease, the disease of sin. And here David appeals for the removal of sin. This is what we heard earlier in 1 John chapter 1. If we, can se- if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is one of the wonderful truths of the, of the gospel. That not only do we receive a pardon for our sin, if we receive forgiveness, but then we are credited righteousness the righteousness of Christ. This is what David goes on then in verses 9 and 11. He says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We have to understand that David is writing in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very silent on the matter of the Holy Spirit. We are not here thinking that one can lose their salvation. We learn later in subsequent revelation that is impossible. What David here is referring to is the anointing of the Holy Spirit for his kingship. David is the king of Israel. He has been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be, and at that anointing, the Holy Spirit descended. It was a seal that he was God's man and God's leader of the nation David here is concerned about losing his throne because of his sin. And so he desires for restoration and a restored relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that when we sin, we separate ourselves from the God who gives us life and breath and being. Sin breaks fellowship with God. We grieve the Holy Spirit and we wound our consciences every time we willfully rebel against God. Lastly, here we see that we ought to go to God for renewal. David ultimately doesn't merely want to be forgiven, but he wants to have a a particular desire in his heart where he will not want to do these things again. This is the desire of every follower of Christ, that, that not only we are pardoned and forgiven, but that then we have new instincts, new loves, new desires. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The second London Baptist Confession defines this as the saving repentance, as an evangelical grace whereby a person by the Holy Spirit, is made sensible of the manifold evils of sin, and that by faith humbles himself to godly sorrow, and ultimately leads to pardon and strength. And the purpose of all of this endeavor, by the supply of the Holy Spirit, is to walk before God in a well-pleasing manner in all things. You see, you are saved not merely to be forgiven, but to be restored into a God-fearing, worshiping individual who would give God glory through the goodness and the good deeds you do in your life. And so we ought to go God for pardon, restoration, and renewal. Lastly, final step. The final step to genuine repentance is to give God the glory. To give God the glory. David ends this particular psalm by giving God the glory for the restoration that he pleads for. Notice there in verse 
13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David understands that if God is going to pardon him, that he is not going to waste his life, but that he is going to use this new life to give God the glory for him. Ultimately, David here in in these verses desires that God would save him from the just penalty of his sin, which is death, and give him a new life. The gospel doesn't teach second chances. The gospel doesn't teach second chances, but it teaches new life in Christ. You see, God is not in the business of just merely cleaning us up and making us a better version of what we once were. But He is in the business of making old things new again. Broken things right. Things that were wrong now do things that are right. This is what the Apostle Paul says when he says, Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. You and I, if you have believed upon Christ, is a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. David outlines a number of ways that we give God the glory. In verse 13, he says that he's going to tell others about God's grace. Repentance naturally leads us to tell others about God's grace. We remember the story of the blind man in John chapter 9. The Pharisees are hounding him. How did this man heal you? How is it that you, a man born blind, can now see? How did Jesus do this? We want to know the secret. What was the recipe? What kind of evil spirits did he use? And, and you know the words of that blind man. He says, I don't know, but one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And that is the confession of every single believer. I don't know all the intricate theological details about how it happened. I don't know how the cake was baked. I don't know about all of this that we were predestined before the foundation of the world. I don't understand all these things. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. I was dead and now I'm alive. And brothers and sisters, we must guard against going down these roads filled with weeds lest we confuse ourselves on the clear matters. Brothers, remember, sisters, remember, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Stick to the main things and we'll be on the right road. Tell others about God's grace. And I think also be be like Nathan. You know, there's a hero in this particular story. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate hero, but there's another hero, and that's Nathan. I mean, consider what Nathan did. He stood up to the very man who could have him killed. He's just killed Uriah. He just had him executed, murdered, in a deceitful way. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be like Nathan and stand up against evil. And call sin, sin, and wrong, wrong. Especially in the lives of those that we love. And I don't mean being a jerk about it. Nathan wasn't a jerk. He spoke the truth in love. He was gracious. He extended grace. 
he extended the opportunity for David to repent, but he was serious with David. He was clear with David, and we ought to be clear with those around us. We ought to also sing about God's grace. Notice verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse, verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Oh, I've said this so often. We ought to sing loudly because God has saved us from so much. We sing Because we're compelled to sing. We're compelled to sing. We're compelled by the grace of God to open our lips. Of all the things you could be doing this morning. All the things you could give your time with. To spend 30 minutes singing. Why? Because we're really good at it? No, I'm not. But because... God is so worthy of it. He's so deserving of it. It's as if you just can't help yourself. You have to do it. it you have the can't help yous. One theologian said this, great mercies call for great song. I mean, th- think about it. And that hymnal in front of you in that pew back. It's not a little skinny thing. It's a big, big old thing. Full of song after song. It's just one of countless thousands that that have been compiled together in the last 2,000 years. Why? Because great mercies call for great song. It's like we just can't stop. We have to keep writing new songs and new songs over and over and over again. Why? Because we didn't like the old songs? No, we love the old songs. They're great songs. But we just keep expressing the glories of God in Christ. We can't stop singing. Lastly, by giving God the glory, we do, never, we do not rather get over God's grace. David concludes here by calling on the reality that God's worship continues. In these final verses, David appeals to the sacrificial system that he knew was the means of atonement. And of course, We know through further revelation that Jesus Christ came to be the one and final sacrifice for all those who would believe upon Him. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what David is saying. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's what God desires of you and me. A broken heart. When's the last time your heart was broken over your sin? Perhaps you have become so acquainted with it, it, it's like an appendix to you. It's a part of you. It's so close to you that you've not seen how much it has distorted and changed you. Let us be humbled by our sin. 
and not be proud. This room ought to be filled with the most humble of all people. None of us merited this. None of us deserved God's redemption. None of us deserve the grace of God. All of it has been brought about by grace and not by work, not by merit. Brothers and sisters, may we join in with the psalmist by confessing our sin before this gracious God. There is hope for you this morning, hope for me this morning. There is no sin so heinous and so great that God will not forgive. I believe this psalm is such a memorable psalm and such an important part of the church because we recognize who sinned. If King David, the greatest king of Israel, the one after God's own heart could sin in this way, then there is hope for you and I. In fact, God only calls sinners to salvation, doesn't He? He never calls saints. He only calls sinners to repentance and to faith. God only saves sinners. For saints have no need of salvation. May we walk through these steps daily as the Lord graciously exposes the sin in our heart. Brothers and sisters, never, never despise the goodness of God when He exposes your sin and my sin. And know this, the promise of Jesus that one day all things will be brought to the light. One day, one day very soon, all of our sin that we've ever committed will be brought into the light. What will wash away that sin that day? Will it be your money? Will it be all of the religious activities that you've done? Will it be your family name? Will it be your church attendance? Or will it be the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, may we give ourselves to the grace of God by being real about our sin, going to the only one who can pardon it, and giving Him the glory when He saves. Let's pray. Father, we pray now, even as we attend the table, this great feast, this dress rehearsal, oh Father, we pray this morning that we might confess our sin before you, our great need of the body and the blood of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for our sin and our willful rebellion, oh and may you wash us thoroughly as white as snow, and do it for your glory alone. In Christ's name, amen.